Last year, some of you will remember, some of you were here, we had a special symposium around the same time in this hall on Revelation. And we had several speakers, uh, including Dr. Domstigt and uh, Dr. Norman McNulty and Dr. Kenneth Matthews, myself, um, and a few others. And we, um, and I gave what I would consider the first part of this presentation last year. It was an overview of what has been happening in the papacy in relation to the ecumenical movement in the last uh, couple of years. And I'm just going to briefly summarize, very briefly, I'd invite you to go to audioverse.org if you want to uh, see that presentation because I'm not going to go over everything again. But I thought what I would do here today as a continuation of that We've looked at history, we've looked at Martin Luther, we've also looked in this last presentation at the continuation of that uh, Protestant reformatory movement within, the, uh, within Protestantism in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And what I wanted to do is ask the question, so what? Is, is the Catholic Church really the same today as it used to be? Is it different? Um, it seems to be different, uh, and if it is different, why is all of this still matter? And so that's kind of uh, the topic of our whole conference has been uh, the Protestant Reformation after 500 years. Does it still matter? Or actually, was it just a misunderstanding? Many of you will remember this scene at the funeral of Pope John Paul II in 2005, when two billion people on this planet tuned in live to watch the ceremony. It was the largest event in terms of people watching in the history of the planet. We all looked perhaps a little bit in shock as we viewed scenes like this one, especially as Seventh-day Adventists, wondering whether, in fact, what we read about um, was taking place, what we had learned about in prophecy and in the Bible was taking place. And of course, as we look at the smiling face of the pontiff today, we see that there is um, a lot of at least perceived changes in the papacy as it relates today to what happened many, many years ago. We kind of wonder whether Luther's designation as the Antichrist still fits today. Somebody asked that question um, this morning already. And so the question that we have before us today is, has the Catholic Church changed? And I believe it has in the sense of uh, its approach, but at its very core, at its very core with the very things that the Protestant reformers were protesting against, has it really changed? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Revelation 13 was seen universally almost by the reformers, and I invite you, if you would like to study this matter even further, to go through the four volumes of Leroy Froome's Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers and just to trace how far back these things go. Sometimes we as Seventh-day Adventists have this misconception that we invented these ideas or that we somehow derived them out of the scriptures. But the fact is, 
that these ideas have been around for a very, very long time. And in Revelation 13, we read, and I saw one of his heads, this is of the sea beast, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. We see that happening today, don't we? And we see it happening with a new intensity and fervor. But I would submit, as we've already learned this particular weekend, that there were two very key elements that made the Reformers stand out and that were the basis for the Reformation and the basis for our mission still today and our message as a Seventh-day Adventist church. The first of those was the principle of sola scriptura, the principle of the Bible and the Bible only. We're going to compare this with what the Catholic Church still teaches today, and we're going to compare this and, and its ramifications with um, the uh, developments that have been taking place in recent times. But let's first of all go to the Bible. Sometimes when we go over history, we, we don't go through the Bible. So what I've done here is kind of uh, put this presentation together as a kind of dialectic, if you will, kind of a, a back and forth with what the Reformers said, with what the Catholic Church is saying today, and with what the Bible says, because ultimately that is our authority, right? It's not just because the Reformers said it that we believe it, it's because the Bible says it that we believe it. And the Reformers base their Reformation on Scripture. So this is the crucial element that we want to follow as we go on today. What about Jesus and the Word? Jesus, of course, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, what does it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is the Word, but what does He say about the Word? How does He relate to the Word in His own life? How does He demonstrate that scriptural authority even had authority over the Son of God? Luke chapter 4 in his famous, and you can read about this also in Matthew and some of the other Gospels, right after his baptism, as Jesus is about to begin his public ministry on this earth, you remember what happened. He went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the devil came and tempted him. And what did the devil do? He tempted him in three ways, and how did Jesus respond? Every single time he responded, it is written, man shall not live. You can say it with me. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a little uh, plug in there for it is written as well. But um, Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus also says, not one jot or tittle will pass of the law. Every single, and Dr. Domstig just has mentioned this, why is it that we think there, there are so many errors in the Bible today? Why, why do we have this concept when the early reformers based their lives not only on the authority but the infallibility of Scripture? Are we still going to do that today? That's the question. Not one jot or tittle will pass. John 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, Jesus says, and these are they which testify to who? To me. John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus says, scripture cannot be broken. In a world that is dominated, especially in scholarship, with historical criticism that divides up the Bible, deconstructs the Bible, we have Jesus saying, Scripture 
as a whole is the living word of God. It cannot be broken. John 17, 17, Jesus in this very famous prayer says to God the Father and prays to God the Father for his disciples. And if we are still his disciples today, Jesus is saying this prayer for us. Sanctify them by your truth. How does it continue? Thy word is truth. And finally, Jesus demonstrated even in his last moments on earth before the crucifixion as he hung dying on the cross, his last verse, his last words were a verse quoted from Scripture, from Psalm 22. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, throughout his life, submitted himself not only to his Father and to his will, but he submitted himself to the Word of God. And this is what the Reformers saw as so crucial to their message and to their mission. They were liberated. They were liberated from the, the tyranny of Rome by discovering for the first time in their lives that the Word of God contained the way to salvation through Jesus Christ, not the church that tried to impose its power over these things. Now, how does that relate to what has happened today? Vatican II was a seminal um, uh, council that met, of course, in the 1960s. This is taken from the documents of Vatican II published in 1967. And notice what Vatican II states, even though Vatican II has changed in some sense the relationship between the church and Protestantism. Protestantism, as Dr. Pettibone says, was no longer um, viewed as heretical, but now as wayward brothers that have left the mother church. And that is the way, by the way, that Pope Francis is still referring to this movement, this ecumenism today. He is using the same language, but this is what Vatican II says. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of devotion and reverence. Now, that's fascinating because sacred scripture, notice the word sacred, sacred is placed with scripture as well as with tradition, number one, but look at the order of these two. Tradition comes first, scripture comes second in this sentence. And when we, whenever we add an and to Scripture, Scripture and reason, Scripture and experience, Scripture and culture, Scripture and tradition, what often happens with time is that what comes after the and takes precedence over Scripture. And that is what has happened in the history of the Catholic Church as well. And they say it outright. Pope Francis, in 2013, in, when speaking to the Pontifical Biblical Commission, which is made up of scholars in the Catholic Church, said this, the interpretation of the Holy Scriptures cannot be only in an individual scientific effort, but must always confront itself with, be inserted within, and authenticated by the living tradition of the church. 
Notice, it must always confront itself with, be inserted within, and authenticated by the living tradition of the church. This norm is essential to specify the correct relationship between exegesis and the magisterium of the church. You see, Protestants believe that everything rests on Scripture alone, that everything derives from Scripture alone. But in Catholic thinking, that is not the case. In Catholic thinking, there are three legs upon which the church stands. One is sacred scripture, one is sacred tradition, and the other is the magisterium that decides how scripture and tradition should be understood by the church and by the believers who adhere to the church. They claim that, the, that without this, without the magisterium, that chaos would exist and there has to be a magisterium to decide what the Bible teaches. But that is not the way Protestants operated. How does Jesus respond to this particular idea? And we're starting with the foundation of Scripture because if you have ever read through our fundamental beliefs as a Seventh-day Adventist church, what is fundamental belief number one? The Bible, the authority of Scripture. That's number one. Why is that number one in our doctrines? Because everything else that we believe derives from that. Everything we know about Jesus Christ derives from Scripture. Everything we know about the Godhead derives from Scripture. Everything we know about creation derives from Scripture, although we can also study nature around us, but what we really can find there is important. In, in Matthew 15, Jesus is speaking, and he says, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your what? Tradition. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, even in the church sometimes, I hear doctrine is not an important thing. We need to focus on the gospel. But doctrine simply means the teaching of the Bible the teaching of Jesus. Jesus, when he left his disciples, in the very last words of Matthew chapter 28, he says, what? Teach them all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That word teach there is the word that is translated as doctrine in other passages of Scripture uh, in the New Testament. So this is an important aspect to recognize. What doctrines or traditions are there that are still in play in the Roman church. What is still in play today? And these are the things that Luther and the Protestants reacted against, and we need to ask the question, I've just listed a few of these, but we need to ask the question, are these still being taught today? This will answer the question, is their identification still valid today? So I'm gonna go through these one by one, and uh, I hope I can get done by, before lunch here. We'll try. We'll start with the place of Mary. It's very interesting that Mariology came into the church early on 
And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at more recent history here because I want to demonstrate how recent history has, has uh, not changed. But if you think about Mariology and you think about where this all came from, it's very interesting that the place of Mary's death traditionally, we don't know exactly where Mary died according to the Bible, but we know that she was taken care of. Remember Jesus at the cross told John the Apostle, the Beloved, to care for his mother. That was one of the last things Jesus said as he hung dying on the cross. And we know that John ended up in Ephesus. We also know that he ended up in Patmos. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. But we also know that he ended up in Ephesus. And there is a strong tradition that Mary is buried in Ephesus. Now, if you say that to a Catholic, that's, you know, she's not in Ephesus anymore. She's in heaven. But um, that's what, what the tradition is. And it's very interesting that at the Council of Ephesus, in uh, the fifth century, we have Mary for the first time recognized as the mother of God. Well we, well, we know she was the mother of God, but was she really? How was the Holy Spirit involved in that conception? That's a very interesting question to ask. In 1904, Pope Pius X declared Mary restorer of the fallen world and mediatrix. She is the channel of all graces and intercessory cooperation. In 1935, Pope Pius XI said Mary is the co-redemptrix. Now, what are these? These are, you know, Latin terms, but what does mediatrix mean? Mediator, what does redemptrix mean? Redeemer, okay, interesting. In 1950, Pope Pius XII pronounced that Mary completely overcame sin by her immaculate conception. So what we as Protestants and what Scripture attributes only to Christ, that he was the sinless one, is now attributed to Mary, as is the other uh, particular features that also previously were attributed to Christ. Some years ago, my wife and I visited this shrine in Bavaria in southern Germany. This is uh, a small chapel which houses the image of Mary, a black Madonna, I'll show a picture here in a moment. Uh, the image dates back to about 1330. The shrine itself, they say, dates back to the 600s, the seventh century AD. This church is only a few kilometers away from where Karl Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, grew up and where he lived. And here is a picture of Pope Benedict XVI visiting that shrine, and he placed the ring that he had received as, as a bishop before he became pope, he placed that on Mary. There is Mary, there is Jesus as a little adult wearing a crown. And uh, what is interesting here is you walk into the shrine, you are promised redemption. This is a pilgrimage place that we saw busloads of people coming that were sick, that were in wheelchairs, because they believed that they would be healed if they would come into the shrine, but more than that, that they would also receive a kind of uh, salvation from that experience as well. Now, of course, Mariology is not something that is, has gone away. Pope John Paul II was a very, very close devotee to Mariology, 
And here is a quote from Pope Francis in his latest, well, not quite latest, there's another couple of encyclicals that have come out since this one in 2015. But notice what he says in point 241. Mary, the mother who cared for Jesus, now cares with maternal affection and pain for this wounded world. By the way, this is the encyclical that he specifically referred to when he came to the United States in 2015 and addressed Congress. This is the encyclical that addresses global warming and climate change. And he is using that particular platform now to argue for, um, for the world to come together and work together to prevent that from happening. Just as her pierced heart mourned the death of Jesus, so now she grieves for the sufferings of the crucified poor and for the creatures of this world laid waste by human power. Completely transfigured, she now lives with Jesus and all creatures sing of her fairness. She is the woman clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Revelation 12.1. Now, who have we identified that woman with? The church. church, But not the church of Rome. The church of Rome says this is Mary. Carried up into heaven, she is the mother, notice, and queen of all creation. In her glorified body, look at the language here. This is language that we would maybe talk about Jesus in, in this way. In her glorified body, Together with the risen Christ, part of creation has reached the fullness of its beauty. She treasures the entire life of Jesus in her heart and now understands the meaning of all things. Hence, we can ask her to enable us to look at this world with eyes of wisdom. I'm reminded of the promise of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. You will see. You will, be, you will see and you will have wisdom, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. She knows all things. Now, it's interesting that Paul, when he went to Corinth, and here's a view of Corinth, and up on the top of that mountain there, the Acre Corinth is where the temple of Aphrodite used to be, and Aphrodite was one of the most worshipped female deities in this part of the world at this time. And in, the, uh, in one of the temples, the temple to Asclepius, the healing god, the god of healing, and by the way, Mary is the person that people go to for what? For healing. We have all of these body parts, these votives that were presented to Asclepius at that time. And what we find at the Marians uh, in Altötting in Bavaria, what we find outside um, are the same kind of votives. You see them back there in the, in the cases behind the glass? People have brought these here so that Mary will remember various body parts that, you know, have been affected by, by one thing or another for healing. And all around this shrine, you see pictures of how Mary has provided healing for different people. People will carry a cross and walk around this church praying for healing. They will say the rosary. We've seen this again and again. Now, what does the Bible say about this? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't go through Mary. You go through Jesus. Jesus gives us direct access to the throne of God. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Who is that? Jesus is the name by which we must be saved. 
And notice how Jesus referred to his mother and to his earthly family. My mother and brothers are those that hear God's word and put it into practice. I don't think Mary would appreciate how she is being portrayed today because she taught the Lord, Jesus, the scriptures from when he was an infant all the way up to his ministry. And I don't think she would have believed what she is being, how she's being portrayed today. Hebrews chapter 4, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firm to the faith we profess. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We don't have to go through Mary. We don't have to go through the saints. By the way, is this still a practice that is practiced by the church today? Look at the people on the left. Okay, I have, I have Luke here. We know that he wrote one of the Gospels, but look at the people on the left. Two individuals that have been beatified just in the last few months. Mother Teresa, who is not referred to any longer as Mother Teresa, but Saint Teresa of Calcutta, and Pope John Paul II, who's no longer Pope, he's now Saint John Paul II. These are recent developments, and I was very interested to find out that making popes saints is not really something that is very common today anymore, but in the past, if you were a pope, it was almost a guarantee. There have been over 80 popes that have been beatified and made saints, but if you were to study the lives of the popes, you might have some questions about that. Martin Luther said, the invocation of the saints is one of the abuses of the Antichrist. And what does the Bible say? Well, we'll see you in a moment. We just saw what it says concerning Mary. It certainly would apply to the saints as well. This is what Pope Pius XII said. There is good reason why the cult of the saints in heaven is valued by Christian people. That is, so that they may employ their help that they may be raised up by the protection of those in whose praises we delight. And from this, it may be easy to understand why the Holy Liturgy offers us many formulas of prayers in which it invokes the assistance of the saints in heaven. Friends, none of us here need the assistance of the saints in heaven because we have a mediator, Jesus Christ, who stands before the throne of God in the heavenly sanctuary today pleading on your behalf and on my behalf. Norman Gully, a very well-known systematic theologian who taught, was my colleague here and our colleague in the School of Religion for many years, just finished his fourth volume, 800 pages of his systematic theology. And I've been reading through that the last few months. And it's magnificent. Because what he does, that last volume is on ecclesiology and the role of the church in the last days. And what he does is he goes through so many of these points. If you want to have some good reading, it's not complicated. He writes very lucidly. He writes very clearly. You don't need to have a PhD in theology to understand what he's saying. But he calls this replacement theology. Replacement theology. In other words, what the Bible says is the prerogative of Christ. What the Bible says is the prerogative of Scripture. What the Bible says 
is the prerogative of, as we will see, many of the things, uh, righteousness by faith, we have a replacement theology that is made up of a different sort. What does the Bible say? Well, let's look at this from a different angle. I was having a conversation in my car one time down on the way to Atlanta with a student. We were talking about Mary and we were talking about the belief of the Catholic Church that she's in heaven. And I said, well, it's quite simple. The Bible teaches that people don't go straight to heaven after they die. Uh, we know that there are two, according to Scripture, that are there, right? Elijah and Moses. But the fact of the matter is that all of this is a moot point if people don't go to heaven, including the saints. And by the way, do you know how many saints there are? Not even the church, I think, knows. I've looked it up online, and I cannot be at a, a definite number, but thousands, thousands of saints. The Bible compares death to sleep more than 50 times. In Ecclesiastes 9.5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. In Acts, we read, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. I wish as an archaeologist I could find it sometime. <laughs> For David did not ascend to the heavens. He's not there. Luke is not there. Matthew's not there. So if we believe in soul sleep, if we believe in the state of the dead, the way the Bible teaches, we will call this into major question. Then we have indulgences in purgatory. And this famous quote from Tetzel, from Johann Tetzel, is, I always wondered, you know, I read it in German and it rhymes in German as well. How did we make it rhyme in English? It's kind of great, isn't it? <laughs> as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Doesn't that have a ring to it? It sounds so good. Doesn't it sound wonderful? I just have to put a coin into a box and I don't have to worry about purgatory anymore. Well, I don't have to worry about purgatory, period, because it doesn't exist. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a figment of the church, not a figment of scripture at all. When Luther put his 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg, the big question was over these indulgences and the abuses of the church in teaching the indulgence system. I just want to read through a couple of these here because some of us have heard about these theses and how many of you us have actually read through them? Not many of us, maybe a few of us have. I'm not going to read through all 95. <laughs> Number five, the Pope has neither the will nor the power to remit any penalties beyond those he has imposed either at his own discretion or by canon law. Ouch. Hence, the preachers of indulgences are wrong when they say a man is absolved and saved from every penalty by the Pope's indulgences. It is mere human talk to preach that the soul flies out immediately, the money clinks in the collection box. It is certainly possible that when the money clinks in the collection box, Greed and avarice can increase, but the intercession of the church depends on the will of God alone. Wow. 
Christians should be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the preachers of indulgences, he would rather have the Basilica of St. Peter reduced to ashes than built with the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. You see, Luther was not only condemning the sale of indulgences because it was a theoretical idea that he disagreed with from Scripture, he saw the effect that it was having on his parishioners every single day. He saw the hope that was incited in their minds as they, as they had come from, the, from these, from these uh, Tetzel gatherings and, and, and the hope that was there as, as they held up this indulgence with which they had paid their last penny for to get grandpa or somebody else out of purgatory. Luther realized these people were giving up their daily living and food in order that some magnificent church in Rome could be built. Luther was incensed not because of theology only, but because his church members were being led astray and were being hurt by these things. And I sometimes wonder today, do we care enough about the world around us to have the same passion? 86. Oh, I like 82. 82 is good too. Why does the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of most holy love? Why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of most holy love and the supreme need of souls? This would be the most re righteous of reasons. If he can redeem innumerable souls for sordid money with which to build a basilica, the most trivial reasons. So if he can do this, if he has the power to do this, why doesn't he just do it for free because he loves people? Why does he have to make them pay for it? Okay, well, we can go on. The fact is the Pope is now doing it for free, so maybe something has changed. In Rio in 2013, the famous World Youth Congress was taking place. I think my wife was actually flying out of Rio as everybody else was flying in. She was like, where are all these young people coming from? They're speaking French and they're speaking Italian and they're... all these young people were flooding into the airport as she was flying out. What is going on? The Pope is coming. It's World Youth Day. The Pope is coming to speak to the youth. And what did he do? He used the language of the youth. This is from CBS News. Get time off of purgatory by following Pope on Twitter. So now you can follow him electronically, and if you listen to what the Pope was saying in that particular location, even though you weren't there physically, you could still receive an indulgence. Now, the Pope didn't like some of the media and what they were saying, so they were trying to clarify some of these things. That's not really what they said, but I'm not so sure. 100-year 100 100-year year anniversary of Fatima is taking place this year from 2016 to 2017. I think I'm stepping over the cord here and it's causing problems. Yeah, and I don't need this microphone, do I? Thank you, Giselle. <laughs> My wife is very smart. That's why I married her. Um, make a pilgrimage to the shrine. These are the three things that you have to do. Make a pilgrimage for, to the shrine. Pray before any statue of Our Lady of Fatima. But if you're elderly or infirm, simply pray in front of any statue. So if you buy a statue or if you see one someplace, you can pray. 
and offer to merciful God with confidence through Mary their prayers and sufferings. These are all quotes, by the way, from Catholic News Agency. I get these from official places, not just any place. Here's the Pope with this particular image that is supposed to invoke something important for us today. By the way, it's not only the Pope in the Catholic Church that believes in Fatima, it's also Muslims. And that's very interesting as we look at ecumenism. Let's go to another aspect, priestly confession. Ingenious, isn't it? You can know the sins of everyone if you are the Catholic Church. You can have knowledge of what everyone is doing. Well, you're not supposed to share that with anyone as a priest, but you can have knowledge. The church can have knowledge. And the church has the power to forgive those sins or to serve as an intercessor for those sins. Martin Luther said, God preserve us from having any other priest but Christ. He says this as a priest. Kind of interesting. What does the Bible say? If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Him, Jesus, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. By the way, you have the whole Trinity reflected in this verse. All, this verse is a powerful one, Acts chapter 5. God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, there's Jesus, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we have God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1, 7. Colossians 1 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We don't have to go to anyone but to Jesus Christ. He is the one that provides us with the redemption that we need. The priest did not die on the cross for our sins. Jesus paid the price on the cross for our sins. And only he, as the creator God who set everything in motion at the beginning, was the person who could pay that penalty for us. No one else could do that. Praise, praise the Lord. One of the big issues that already has come up in one of the previous uh, discussions and also in the question-answer period is the mandating of celibacy among the priesthood. This is a huge issue today. And it's led to major, major abuses that have been documented and continue to be documented in the church. Horrible things that I don't want to get into today. But they're everywhere. And as people are beginning to speak out, it's becoming worse and worse. The previous pope, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, wanted to deal with this issue head on. The current pope is not doing as much, I think very interesting. What does the Bible say? It is not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2, 18. Priests in the Old Testament were married. Peter, 
who according to the Catholic Church was the first pope, that we don't agree with that as Protestants and Luther didn't agree with that either. Peter, the first pope, was not celibate. Jesus healed his mother-in-law on the Sabbath day. You remember that story in Capernaum. Other apostles were married according to 1 Corinthians 9.5. And of course, we have the description of leaders in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, that they should be the husband of one wife. The Bible does not teach celibacy when it comes to leadership in the church. Well, we're going through, the next one is kind of very obvious for Seventh-day Adventists, but I, 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 I really, I saw this for the first time this summer in Spain. My wife and I and our family, we were visiting um, the city of Seville. This is in Seville, right, honey? Okay. And there in the, in the Catholic Church is this monumental altar. And our tour guide, who we had hired to take us on an official tour of this Catholic Church, told us that that is Jesus that is crowned. And that is Jesus as the Son. Now, you have the sun there. This is sun worship, right? There's the sun. Underneath Jesus, okay, what do you have? Mary, and then you have the popes on either side. So there's Jesus as the sun. So sun worship. But the Ten Commandments, which command us to worship on the seventh-day Sabbath, is written with God's own finger. God said to Israel, see that you do all that I command. Do not add to it or take away from it. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 22. Jesus confirmed, if you love me, keep my commandments. And in Revelation, we read that the faithful saints at the end of time are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And yet, what, have, what has happened in Catholicism Catholic Church has changed the commandments. They've gotten rid of the second commandment because it wasn't convenient for them not to have graven images. There's graven images all over their churches. The icons of the saints are everywhere, so let's just get rid of that. It's not convenient. By the way, on the left is the Ten Commandments summarized as it is in our Bibles, and on the right are the Ten Commandments as they appear in many catechisms of the Catholic Church. Number two becomes, do not uh, take God's name in vain. The seventh day aspect of the Sabbath is removed in the fourth commandment, and it's shortened drastically. Uh, the rest are pretty much the same until you get to nine and ten, where they have divided the last commandment into two parts in order to arrive at the ten again. This is very clear. Notice what the catechism, the most recent catechism of the Catholic Church says. This was published in 1994. This is the most recent catechism. Notice what it says about Sunday and the church. Sunday is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Wow. Sunday is expressly distinguished from the Sabbath, which follows it chronologically every week. For Christians, its ceremonial observance replaces that of the Sabbath. Now you understand why Dr. Gully calls this replacement theology. Sunday replaces the Sabbath. The Sabbath, I'm sorry, which represents the completion of the first creation, 
Hmm. Isn't that true that Sabbath and the fourth commandment is tied to creation, right? So they're right about that, which represents the completion of the first creation, has been replaced by Sunday, which recalls the new creation inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ. Hmm. Interesting. In respecting religious liberty and the common good of all, Christians should seek recognition of Sundays and the church's holy days as legal holidays. All right, let's stop there for a minute. I think I'm running out of time and I haven't even gotten started yet, but I need to, I need to, I need to say something here. Isn't it ironic that in respecting religious liberty and the common good of all, we want to legalize Sunday and make it a national mandate in as many countries as possible? That is, that is what Christians should seek in whatever country they live in, the legalization of Sunday. This is modern Catholic teaching. This is not something from Martin Luther's day 500 years ago. This is 1994. And uh, most of us were living then, I think. I have to check because I think my students were now born in 1992 or so. No, 1998 actually. 98 and, and later, or not too much earlier. Anyway. Um, okay. Several, several of you may recognize this picture. And now I'm going to get into some more recent events that have happened just a little bit as it relates to some of these other events. But... This is uh, the president's first visit to overseas countries. It was taken in May uh, this year. I was sitting getting my tires changed here locally. I was talking to a fellow church member, my friend Herb Polson. Uh, Fox News was playing in the background and suddenly my ear caught something and I felt bad that I interrupted um, our conversation. I said, did you hear that? They said, no. President Trump was getting on Air Force One with his wife Melania and they said he is, his mission for this uh, trip is to unite the three great world religions. So Herb then left because his car was fixed, mine wasn't yet. And so uh, I stayed and they repeated it again and I wrote it down. I had my computer with me, I typed it, I, I, I quoted it, but I don't have to write it down from what they said on the TV. This is what it says, you can look it up yourself. I got this online. This is the 19th of May this year. The president began developing this trip during the transition and wants to reaffirm and build relationships and offer a message of unity to three of the world's greatest religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, according to administration officials. So listen. Where did he go? You remember? He went first to Saudi Arabia where he met with leaders of all the Arab countries. Over 80 different leaders were there. And then where did he go next? To Israel, where for the first time in history, a seating, sitting president of the United States visited the Western Wall, not as a political gesture, but with religion, uh, religious leaders. And then where, where did he go last? The Vatican. Okay. And what was he given at the Vatican? He brought a gift to the Pope, but what, did he, what was he given? He was given the Pope's latest encyclical. And he promised the Pope, this was, this was, this was, this was uh, 
you know, recorded by the news media, he promised the Pope that he would read it. What does the encyclical say? This is the encyclical we've just been quoting from earlier. This is the encyclical that deals again with global warming and climate change and so forth. Number 237. On Sunday, our participation in the Eucharist has special importance. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, what did the Seventh-day Sabbath just become? The Jewish Sabbath. Were there any Jews around at creation? Wow, okay. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day which heals our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. Sunday is the day of the resurrection, the first day of the new creation. Notice how it hasn't changed since the catechism in 1994. Whose first fruits are the Lord's risen humanity, the pledge of the final transfiguration of all created reality. The law of weekly rest forbade work on the seventh day. Now he quotes from Exodus 23. So that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your maidservant and the stranger may be refreshed. Notice he quotes Exodus 23, but not Exodus 20, where the 10th commandment actually is located, where the fourth commandment is located. Rest opens our eyes to the larger picture and gives us renewed sensitivity to the rights of others. And so the day of rest centered on the Eucharist sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and the poor. By the way, it was this agenda of climate change that he used very openly to promote at his first address to Congress in 2015, just a few months after this encyclical was published. But it was two years later, after the encyclical was published, that he gave the copy to President Trump and encouraged him by doing so to read it. And of course, this was not just a simple gesture. It was not simply a gift. This was Rome dictating what the superpower of the world should do. Let's be very clear about it. Martin Luther said, he has deposed all of Scripture and set up his own laws. And we can see that. And we can, you know, you, you're acquainted with all of the old quotes that we've used for the change of Sabbath to Sunday. I don't need to go into all of that again. Let's look at the sacraments. The sacraments, by the way, there are seven sacraments, and the sacraments are what Catholics teach are the way in which the Catholic Church administers them, and they are the way by which you obtain salvation, through the sacraments. If you do the sacraments, you'll be okay. If you don't, there's another story. This is canon number four, and it says, this is, this is canon law now. We're quoting from canon law. That's, that's Catholic teaching. If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation but superfluous, and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification. Though all the sacraments are not necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. In other words, this is a direct response to the Protestant Reformation. It's through the sacraments and through the church that you obtain salvation. Through the works of the sacraments, 
not through faith alone and justification alone. That is the difference. And even with the, low, the, the current um, uh, agreement that was referred to earlier, and I won't go into that today, uh, it's very interesting that while they talk about justification by faith, the way the language is, is, is manipulated there, it's a very different thing from the classic Protestant understanding. Now, my wife is the art historian who will speak this afternoon, and I found this last night, actually early this morning, I have to admit, and, um, and I couldn't help but put it in here because this is a, a, a response to Protestantism in an artistic form after the Council of Trent, which responded and which inaugurated the Counter-Reformation. And this is the sacramental system as understood by Catholicism. And I don't have time today to go through all of it. But you see Jesus, and you see the blood pouring from his side, and how that connects then with the sacraments, how it comes into a vessel, and how that connects then with the sacraments. Notice the chains that go from the sacraments up to the church, which is right in the middle. That's the church. That's not Mary. That's the church. That's the ecclesia. And I won't have time to go into all of this. I still want to study this, and I want Giselle to study it. But anyway, this is fascinating. In art, as you will see this afternoon, in art, the Catholic Church has been teaching its doctrine as much as it has been through written sources. And uh, we'll see this afternoon how, through art, Protestantism responded to this as well. Notice what Pope Francis said in the same encyclical. It is, the it is in the Eucharist that all that has been created finds its greatest exaltation. Grace, which tends to manifest itself tangibly, by the way, the Eucharist is one of those sacraments, Grace, which tends to manifest itself tangibly, found unsurpassable expression when God himself became man and gave himself as food for his creatures. This is transubstantiation, where the host becomes the very body of Christ. Thousands of times every single day as mass is performed around the world, the priest has the power to make the body of Christ there in that presence. In the Eucharist, fullness is already achieved. It is the living center of the universe, the overflowing core of love and of inexhaustible life. Joined to the incarnate Son present in the Eucharist. So who's in present? Jesus is present in the Eucharist. The whole cosmos give thanks to God. Indeed, the Eucharist is itself an act of cosmic love. Yes, cosmic I don't, I don't have time to go into this, but this is, this is language of emerging church. Cosmic Christ, the cosmic Christ. You read stuff like this, you're going back to Rome. This is, this is, this is uh, very interesting what is taking place here. That's another lecture, don't have time. Creation is projected toward, towards divination, towards the holy wedding feast, towards unification with the creator itself. What? Divination? We become divine when we take the Eucharist? Interesting. Martin Luther, how did he put it? The papacy also negated Christ's sacrifice by proclaiming the mass to be a sacrifice for the living and the dead, obtaining forgiveness of sins, 
It is as though Christ had not done this very thing on the cross, as though his sacrifice had no validity and were of no value. It puts all the power in the church and removes it from Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We don't have to eat the Eucharist to experience that. Not by works of righteousness. By the way, this is the, these, these sacraments again are works, right? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This, my friends, is what the Reformers lived and died for. This is the truth of Scripture that they sought to free their congregations from. These are the things that they wrote about and the things that moved them. These two individuals pictured here lost their lives in that particular movement. They were martyred for their faith. So the question is, what would Martin Luther say today? What would the true saints of the church who died in the past for their faith, thousands of them, what would they say today? In this period of our history, we need to be careful that they did not die in vain. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. But while Sola Scriptura exposed the erroneous teachings of papal Rome, Sola Scriptura did something else. And I want to end with a few more slides here. It did something more, and that brings us to the second pillar of the Reformation, already referred to by two of our presenters this morning. It was the historicist method of prophetic interpretation as derived from the Scriptures. That careful study of prophecy by the Reformers that identified the little horn of Daniel 7 and 8 and the sea beast of Revelation 13 and the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with one single power that reigned on earth for 1260 years. This identification, together with the clear departure from biblical doctrine, identified the protest against Rome. It is this which we have inherited from Protestantism. It is historicism that gives us part of our reason and our message and our mission. Today, historicism seeks, uh, uh, ceases to be one of the main methods of prophetic interpretation. The Protestant churches have, for the most part, given it completely up. In its place, we have preterism, which, of course, was an invention by a Jesuit priest in Spain as part of the Counter-Reformation 
He taught that everything was fulfilled before A.D. 400 and that Nero was to be identified with the Antichrist. Preterism today has been baptized by historical criticism and has become the major mode of interpreting prophecy because there really is no predictive prophecy according to uh, rational thinking. Uh, rationalists who, who uh, basically deny the intervention of God in history and the inspiration of God in history, this is the primary method in which they use. Prophecy is not foretelling something that is going to take in the future, it's forthtelling something that has already taken place. And this is what most universities teach today, even seminaries. Evangelical Protestant Christianity, some of them have gone a different direction, futurism, and with futurism comes a sub category of dispensationalism, and they have pushed everything off into the future, not everything, but much of what is going to take place in the future. The Antichrist is a future power that will come. They see Israel as being a fulfillment of prophecy. They see the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem as a fulfillment. They see the state of Israel as a fulfillment of prophecy, and they see the Antichrist power coming at the end of time. And then there is the spiritualization of prophecy, which we call idealism, where the figures that were interpreted with such specificity by the reformers are now being changed and simply spiritualized away. So that the number 666 does not specifically any longer refer to vicarious philidae, the papacy, but it simply is a number of imperfection. So that the ten days in Revelation chapter 2 with the prophecy of Smyrna, the ten days of persecution that was always attributed by Protestantism to the ten years of Diocletian's massacre of Christians, those ten days are possibly that, but probably something else. They just refer to a period of persecution sometime. And this movement away from historical fulfillment in specifics to something else describes what is happening in much of Protestantism today. The Seventh-day Adventist Church as a worldwide denomination is almost alone in teaching today historicism as the reformers taught it as they have taught it for hundreds of years. And it's interesting because with all three of these new systems, the period of Papal Rome, those 1260 years, disappear completely from the prophetic viewpoint. Thomas Hobbes, a very well-known philosopher, living in the period of the Protestant Reformation said this, if a man consider the origin of this great ecclesiastical dominion, he will easily perceive that the papacy is no other than the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned on the grace thereof. And so the question that we have today is if Hobbes and the reformers were alive today, 
wouldn't they be amazed to see that the ghost of the Roman Empire is reestablishing itself again in leaping strides? Do we care as much as the reformers did today? What caused this German monk to have the audacity to do what he did? Could it be that truth with a capital T, as it is found in Scripture, compelled him? No, moved him so forcefully to expose the errors of a system that had wholly and completely replaced the good news of the gospel, plunging the world into darkness for so many centuries. Could it be that this is what drove him to translate the Bible so that the common people could understand it for themselves? If Luther was moved with the plight of his people then, should we not be moved for the plight of billions of people in the world today who are as deceived today even more so than they were in the past? We are not in an age of enlightenment. The world is becoming darker year by year. So we end with the question, the Reformation after 500 years, is it just a misunderstanding? And I want to end with an appeal. An appeal and even a, a raison d'etre for who we are today. Could it be that the Seventh-day Adventist church is God's remnant church that has been called for such a time as this? Could it be that it is not coincidence that in a world that is steeped in evolutionary thinking, that we almost alone as a denomination in the world today believe in a literal six-day creation? The Catholic Church doesn't believe that anymore. It teaches evolution. Most other Protestant denominations teach some form of theistic evolution or progressive creationism. But we as a church, again and again and again, even in the last general conference session, have reaffirmed and even tightened our language concerning the doctrine of creation. Is that a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that in the Laodicean message, Jesus is introduced in that letter in Revelation uh, 3, verse 14. These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. You don't have a mention of creation with the preceding six churches, but when the Laodicean church, the end time church is introduced, he is the true and faithful witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Because creation will be one of the key elements upon which everything else will hinge. And could it be, sorry, this is the last slide. <laughs> I've only gone four minutes over my hour, I believe, so I know we have to eat. Could it be that sola scriptura and the idea of the authority of the Bible, which has been largely given up by other churches in favor of some other tradition, reason, experience, culture, 
that this is what sets our church apart today? Could it be that the state of the dead will protect us from the influences of spiritualism, the worship of the saints, the praying to the saints and to Mary, and all the things that will come together at the end of time when spiritualism, Protestantism, and Catholicism will come together. We are a prophetic movement, a movement that have been called to uphold the historicist method of prophecy. It's that method of prophecy that gives us our mission and our message. It is what has led us to understand the sanctuary doctrine and that Jesus is today in the most holy place, ministering in our behalf. We believe in righteousness by faith and not by works, but we believe that keeping the seventh-day Sabbath honors the Creator God who made it to spend time with us at the beginning and who has placed it as a sign and a test for the end time. Are we worshiping him in spirit and truth still today? Or are we allowing worship influences from the world to impact what we do on Sabbath from week to week? Are we faithful to scripture and to the calling that God has given us? We have the choice today, as the reformers did in the past, to be faithful to scripture, to uphold scripture, and with Luther to say, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your word made flesh, who through his life demonstrated in word and in action his faithfulness to the written word of God. Today we are facing and will face increasingly challenges that will shake us to our very core. But we are reminded by the words of Scripture that though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word shall stand forever. And one day soon, Jesus will come in the clouds of heaven and he will take us home and he will have but one question. Have you been faithful, my good and faithful servant? And if we can answer and if he can answer that question, then we will inherit the kingdom that he has prepared for us. No church has the power to give us that kingdom. Only Jesus Christ, by his merit and by his blood. And in his name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.